Section 7 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, A Study of the Forms of Life, Thought and Art in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Eaton. The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Hutzinger. Translated by Frederick Jan Hopman. Chapter 5. The Dream of Heroism and of Love. A conception of military life resembling that of medieval chivalry is found nearly everywhere, notably with the Hindus of the Mahabdrata and in Japan. Warlike aristocracies need an ideal form of manly perfection. The aspiration to a pure and beautiful life expressed in the Kalokagathia of the Hellenes in the Middle Ages gives birth to chivalry, and during several centuries that ideal remains a source of energy, and at the same time a cloak for a whole world of violence and self-interest. The ascetic element is never absent from it. It is most accentuated in the times when the function of knighthood is most vital, as in the times of the early Crusades. The noble warrior has to be poor and exempt from worldly ties. This ideal of the well-born man without possessions, says William James, was embodied in knight errantry and templardom, and hideously corrupted, as it has always been, it still dominates sentimentally, if not practically, the military and aristocratic view of life. We glorify the soldier as the man absolutely unencumbered, owning nothing but his bare life, and willing to toss that up at any moment when the cause commands him. He is the representative of unhampered freedom in ideal directions. Medieval chivalry in its first bloom was bound to blend with monarchism. From this union were born the military orders of the Templars, of St. John, of the Teutonic Knights, and also those of Spain. Soon, however, or rather from the very beginning, reality gives the lie to the ideal, and accordingly the ideal will soar more and more towards the regions of fantasy, there to preserve the traits of asceticism and sacrifice too rarely visible in real life. The knight-errant, fantastic and useless, will always be poor and without ties, as the first Templars had been. It would thus be unjust to regard as factitious or superficial the religious elements of chivalry, such as compassion, fidelity, justice. They are essential to it, yet the complex of aspirations and imaginings forming the idea of chivalry, in spite of its strong ethical foundation, and the combative instinct of man, would never have made so solid a frame for the life beautiful if love had not been the source of its constantly revived ardour. These very traits, moreover, of compassion, of sacrifice, and of fidelity, which characterise chivalry, are not purely religious. They are erotic at the same time. Here again it must be remembered that the desire of bestowing a form, a style, on sentiment is not expressed exclusively in art and literature. 
it also unfolds in life itself in courtly conversation in games in sports there too love incessantly seeks a sublime and romantic expression if therefore life borrows motifs and forms from literature literature after all is only copying life the chivalrous aspect of love had somehow to make its appearance in life before it expressed itself in literature the knight and his lady that is to say the hero who serves for love this is the primary and invariable motif from which erotic fantasy will always start it is sensuality transformed into the craving for self-sacrifice into the desire of the male to show his courage to incur danger to be strong to suffer and to bleed before his lady-love from the moment when the dream of heroism through love has intoxicated the yearning heart fantasy grows and overflows the first simple theme is soon left behind the soul thirsts for new fancies and passion colours the dream of suffering and of renunciation the man will not be content merely to suffer he will want to save from danger or from suffering the object of his desire a more vehement stimulus is added to the primary motive its chief feature will be that of defending imperilled virginity in other words that of ousting the rival this then is the essential theme of chivalrous love poetry the young hero delivering the virgin the sexual motif is always behind it even when the aggressor is only an artless dragon a glance at burne jones's famous picture suffices to prove it one is surprised that comparative mythology should have looked so indefatigably to meteorological phenomena for the explanation of such an immediate and perpetual motif as the deliverance of the virgin which is the oldest of literary motifs and one which can never grow antiquated it may from time to time become stale from overmuch repetition and yet it will reappear adapting itself to all times and surroundings new romantic types will arise just as the cowboy has succeeded the corsair. The Middle Ages cultivated these motifs of a primitive romanticism with a youthful insatiability. Whereas in some higher genres of literature, such as lyrical poetry, the expression of desire and fulfilment became more refined. The romance of adventure always preserved it in its crude and naive forms without ever losing its charm to its contemporaries. We might have expected that the last centuries of the Middle Ages would have lost their relish for these childish fantasies. We are inclined to suppose that Meliodor, the super-romantic novel by Froissart, or Perse Forest, those belated fruits of chivalrous romance, were anachronisms even in their own day. They were no more so than the sensational novel is at present. Erotic imagination always requires similar models, and it finds them here. In the heyday of the Renaissance, we see them revive in the cycle of Amadis of Gaul. When a good while after the middle of the 16th century, Francois de la Nuit 
affirms that the novels of Amadis had caused un esprit de vertige among his generation. The generation of the Huguenots, which had passed through humanism with its vein of rationalism, we can imagine what must have been the romantic susceptibility of the ill-balanced and ignorant generation of 1400. Literature did not suffice for the almost insatiable needs of the romantic imagination of the age. Some more active form of expression was required. Dramatic art might have supplied it, but the medieval drama in the real sense of the word treated love matters only exceptionally. Sacred subjects were its substance. There was, however, another form of representation, namely noble sports, tourneys and jousts. Sportive struggles always and everywhere contain a strong dramatic element and an erotic element. In the medieval tournament, these two elements had so much got the upper hand that its character of a contest of force and courage had been almost obliterated by its romantic purport. With its bizarre accoutrements and pompous staging, its poetical illusion and pathos, it filled the place of the drama of a later age. The life of aristocracies, when they are still strong, though of small utility, tends to become an all-round game. In order to forget the painful imperfection of reality, the nobles turn to the continual illusion of a high and heroic life. They were the mask of Lancelot and Tristram. It is an amazing self-deception. The crying falsehood of it can only be borne by treating it with some amount of raillery. The whole chivalrous culture of the last centuries of the Middle Ages is marked by an unstable equilibrium between sentimentality and mockery. Honour, fidelity and love are treated with unimpeachable seriousness. Only from time to time the solemn rigidity relaxes into a smile, but downright parody never prevails. Even after the Morgante of Pulsi and the Orlando Inamorato of Boyardo had made the heroic pose ridiculous, Ariosto recaptured the absolute serenity of chivalrous sentiment. In French circles of about 1400, the cult of chivalry was treated with perfect gravity. It is not easy for us to understand this seriousness, and not to be startled by the contrast between the literary note of a Boussicot and the facts of his career. He is represented as the indefatigable defender of courtesy and of chivalry, serving his lady according to the old rules of courteous love. He served all, he honoured all, for the love of one. His speech was graceful, courteous and diffident before his lady. During his travels in the Near East in 1388, he and his companions in arms amused themselves by composing a poetical defence of the faithful and chaste love of a knight. The Livre des Saint-Balades One might have supposed him cured of all chivalrous delusions after the catastrophe of Nicopolis. There he had seen the lamentable consequences of statecraft recklessly embarking on an enterprise of vital import in the spirit of a chivalrous adventure. 
his companions of the sans ballades had perished that would suffice one would think to make him turn his back on old-fashioned forms of courtesy yet he remains devoted to them and resumes his moral task in founding the order de la dame blanche à l'escue vert like all romantic forms that are worn out as an instrument of passion this apparatus of chivalry and of courtesy affects us at first sight as a silly and ridiculous thing the accents of passion are heard in it no more save in some rare products of literary genius still all these costly elaborated forms of social conduct have played their part as a decoration of life as a framework for a living passion in reading this antiquated love poetry or the clumsy descriptions of tournaments no exact knowledge of historical details avails without the vision of the smiling eyes long turned to dust which at one time were infinitely more important than the written word that remains only a stray glimmer now reminds us of the passionate significance of these cultural forms in the voix de heron the unknown author makes jean de beaumont speak consommé taverne de ces faux vins buvants et ces dames d'elle qui nous vont regardant à ces gorges polices colis tirant chils si velvets resplendissant de but souriant nature nous semons d'avoir que désirant adonnant conquérant nous yamons et agulant et les autres conquérants olivier et roland mais consommés comme suno destrier courant nos excuses à nos colonels lance baisant et la froide grande nous va tout engueulant les membres nous effrondons derrière et devant et nos ennemis sont envers nous approchant à donner vos chelier si grand que jamais ne fusion veut en compte nowhere does the erotic element of the tournament appear more clearly than in the custom of the knight's wearing the veil or the dress of his lady in perth forest we read how the lady spectators of the combat take off their finery one article after another to throw them to the knights in the lists at the end of the fight they are bareheaded and without sleeves a poem of the thirteenth century the work of picard or a hainault minstrel entitled des trois chevaliers et de la chance has worked out this motif in all its force the wife of a nobleman of great liberality but not very fond of fighting sends her shirt to three knights who serve her for love that one of them at the tournament which her husband is going to give may wear it as a coat armour without any mail underneath the first and the second knights excuse themselves the third who is poor takes the shirt in his arms at night and kisses it passionately he appears at the tournament dressed in the shirt and without a coat of mail he is grievously wounded the shirt stained with his blood is torn then his extraordinary bravery is perceived and he is awarded the prize 
the lady gives him her heart the lover asks something in his turn he sends back the garment all blood-stained to the lady that she may wear it over her gown at the meal which is to conclude the feast she embraces it tenderly and shows herself dressed in the shirt as the knight had demanded the majority of those present blame her the husband is confounded and the minstrel winds up by asking the question which of the two lovers sacrificed most for the sake of the other the church was openly hostile to tournaments it repeatedly prohibited them and there is no doubt that the fear of the passionate character of this noble game and of the abuses resulting from it had a great share in this hostility moralists were not favourably disposed towards tournaments neither were the humanists where do we read petrarch ass that cicero or scipio jousted the burghers thought them useless and ridiculous only the world of the nobility continued to cultivate all that regarded tournaments and jousts as things of the highest importance monuments were erected on the sites of famous combats as the pelerine cross near saint omer in remembrance of the passage of arms of la pelerine and of the exploits of the bastard of saint paul and a spanish knight bayard piously went to visit this cross as if on a pilgrimage in the church of notre dame of boulogne were preserved the decorations of the passage of arms of the fontaine de pleurs solemnly dedicated to the holy virgin the warlike sports of the middle ages differ from greek and modern athletics by being far less simple and natural pride honour love and art give additional stimulus to the competition itself overloaded with pomp and decoration full of heroic fancy they serve to express romantic needs too strong for mere literature to satisfy the realities of court life or a military career offered too little opportunity for the fine make-belief of heroism and love which filled the soul so they had to be acted the staging of the tournament therefore had to be that of romance that is to say the imaginary world of arthur where the fancy of a fairy tale was enhanced by the sentimentality of courtly love a passage of arms of the fifteenth century is based on a fictitious case of chivalrous adventure connected with an artificial scene called by a romantic name as for instance la fontaine des pleurs l'arbre chalemar a fountain is expressly constructed and beside it a pavilion where during a whole year a lady is to reside in effigy be it understood holding a unicorn which bears three shields the first day of each month knights come to touch the shields and in this way to pledge themselves for a combat of which the chapters of the passage of arms lay down the rules they will find horses in readiness for the shields have to be touched on horseback or in the case of the emprise du dragon four knights will be stationed at a cross-road where unless she gives a gage no lady may pass without a knight breaking two lances for her there is an unmistakable connection 
between these primitive forms of warlike and erotic sport and the children's play of forfeits one of the rules of the chapters of the fontaine de Breurs runs thus he who in a combat is unhorsed will during a year wear a gold bracelet until he finds the lady who holds the key to it and who can free him on condition that he shall serve her the nobles like to throw a veil of mystery and melancholy over the procedure the knight should be unknown he is called le blanc chevalier le chevalier mesconnu or he wears the crest of lancelot or palamedes the shields of the fount of tears are white violet and black and overspread with white tears those of the tree of charlemagne are sable and violet with gold and sable tears at the emprise du dragon celebrated on the occasion of the departure of his daughter margaret for england king rené was present dressed all in black and his whole outfit caparison horse and all down to the wood of his lance was of the same colour end of section seven